thought Gilbert was going to storm the heavens, so I was, I was all ready for a, <laughs> a great time. Anyway, well, let's turn to uh, page 26 of your notes, and it says at the top, day four. So we're, we're sort of on schedule. And uh, we've got a lot of from sitting to walking. Now, let me say this, that uh, the things which we learn to sit in, they're like sort of crises. I mean, when, when, when you see it, the truth hits you like a ton of bricks and you say, now I know what Paul meant when he wrote that, or now I know what Jesus said when he taught that, or I know even what, when Brother So-and-so said that, now suddenly it's a flame as a, as a, as a, there's a grasped reality in my life. So there's, there's a crisis. There is a, a moment, really, when you sit on the throne, and then there's a moment when you're first baptized in the Spirit. There are many, there's a, there's a moment when you are able to say with absolute assurance that my old man has been crucified with Christ, and I'm not a prisoner to these things anymore. There's a moment when besetting sins no longer beset you. Now, I've had several experiences of when a besetting sin that's dogged me for years, it suddenly becomes a past event, which is absolutely biblical. But I want to put it like this. It's like as if you can imagine unwisely letting a very pushy salesman inside your house and he's sort of chasing you around the house, getting you to buy something. And, and he plagues you to death and and he, he's irresistible when he's inside the house. And there comes a crisis when, through faith, by the power of the word, and it may often include deliverance from a demon. You don't have to spew and pass it. I mean, many demons have got their hooks into Christians, and it's a, it's a cut-off thing. But then it's like as if the salesman is thrown outside the house, and you now have the opportunity to shut the door. Well, for a while, he'll still knock on the windows <laughs> and ring the bell and, and do his best to get to persuade you to let him come in again. But it's a, it's a different level of temptation. It's resistible. And, and I remember going through that process. In my case, the, the battle for me was, was a, a, a uncontrollable lust and habits that I don't even want to talk about because of the way I lived in my teens and twenties, but there came a day long after I was saved and when I was actually pastoring the church in Bombay and after I was baptized in the Spirit, the Lord showed me that I had a new mind. I had the mind of Christ. It's in Scripture. And I, but there was a moment when I put it on. There's a, there's a crisis moment. When, and, and from that day, those overwhelming temptations which I couldn't resist became resistible temptations which were the war wasn't inside me it was as if he was trying to re regain entrance do you understand and it was quite easy to, but it did require a persistent discipline in life not to allow the devil to re regain that territory does that does that make sense to you and so there's a crisis 
which I think is best described in these two phrases, either sitting in terms of our power and our authority, or you'll find this phrase coming now in Ephesians 4, again and again, this phrase, put on and put off. And these are sort of crisis things which we, which we do, but then there is a, a process in which we walk once the crisis has, has, has been accomplished. And you've got to make the distinction between these two things. Does that make sense to you? And if you don't walk in what you sat in, or if you don't walk in what you put on or put off, there isn't the continuation of the crisis that there should be. And this is, and you'll find this comes again and again in Ephesians 4 and 5. Now we're, we're walking out the process that we accomplish by the crisis. Does that make sense to you? And so, it's, it's, it's like, I suppose it's a bit like a, a patch of ground. You may dig out some very, very deeply rooted weeds which are polluting the ground. You may have some very strong trees that are occupying the ground and there comes a day when you dig the things out and you throw them away. Now, you've got, you've cleansed the soil, but the trouble is your next door neighbor is growing all kinds of weeds and, and, and the seeds are blowing into your garden all the time. So you've got to be vigilant to keep the ground clear because they're blowing in all the time. We live in a filthy, demonized world and the pressures are continually, the, the seeds are always being dropped in. And, and it's like it says in James, if you pluck them out as, as a seedling, it's not too big a deal. But if you're not attentive to your garden, then these new seedlings, which are not the old man, they're not the old man, but if, if you let these seedlings get root and start to grow again, in a, in a manner of speaking, you, if, as it were, you allow a new old man to grow within you. And that's what James is talking about. I'm not in the book of James. I'm tempted to go there, but I'm being very disciplined. Because, <laughs> see, the Bible is so woven together, you really can't take one book without referring to other books, okay? So that's what we're going to be looking at in this, these two sessions. Primarily, we're going to be looking at this walk. But I want us just to, uh, before we get into Ephesians, I'd like us just to go back to other scriptures just to help clarify this. And, and then we're going to look at some, we're going to look at, at how we walk in principle, and then we're going to look at how we walk in particular. Is that all right? So once you've got the principle of walking, then it's not, it's easier to understand how you walk in the particular. So I want us to go to Romans. We did touch on these yesterday, but I want us just to take the trouble to read those scriptures. And Paul is crying out at the end of Romans 7, verse 24, A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the Lord of God. With the flesh, I serve the Lord of sin. The flesh is sin's happy hunting ground. Anything that's of the flesh is, is irresistibly um, going to be possessed by sin. And, and you, you read this again and again, that, that sin, finding opportunity through the flesh, killed me. Amen? So if there's any flesh operating in your life, then there's going to be a permanent door wide open for sin to come in. It's really that simple. So if you don't deal with the flesh, then you're never going to know victory over sin. If you don't 
close the door to that invasion of sin, you're never going to be able to walk in the realities that we're going to be talking about. And, and, and okay, well, let's define flesh. We better do that. Flesh is, is that, this is, I think this is the best definition, it's that union of body and soul that acts independently of God. That union, so in other words, the issue is independence. It's that union of body and soul that acts independently of God. And perhaps the most subtle and most dangerous form of flesh is religious flesh. Where you are trying to genuinely do the will of God by your own effort rather than letting the Spirit of God do it for you. And, 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 and so you can, and people sincerely try, but it's like trying to lift yourself up by your own bootlaces. It's, it's, it's an impossibility. How can the flesh triumph over the flesh? It can't. So, so if the devil can't get you into you know, obvious, sinful worldly living, he'll get you into, into sincere religious activity where you are striving to reform yourself or striving to fulfill the word of God or striving to even get hold of the promises of God. And it's one of the most easy and subtle habits to fall into. Even praying for a city, even interceding, even asking God to come in revival, that can become a work of the flesh. Because subtly you're thinking that you're going to buy it by your activity. If we pray for so many hours, then God's got to answer us. Well, that, that's, that's a formula of the flesh. Amen. So, we've got to recognize the flesh is very subtle. It's like, in the Old Testament, the, the, the picture of the flesh was the Amalekites, and of course, King Agag is the, is the epitome of the flesh. And, and of how Saul was um, totally deceived by King Agag and uh, spared his life and then he came back to Samuel and said oh we've obeyed the commandment of the law but he had 97% so Samuel says well what's all this bleating of sheep that I hear <laughs> well we've kept the best ah but to offer as a sacrifice to the law and, and there, there is King Agag beginning to smile and think yeah you know now I'm going to be Saul's going to let me live and Saul would have let him live, but Samuel is more spiritually perceptive, so he takes a sword, and it's the only time I've ever seen Samuel furious and, and, and murderous in his intent. And he kills Agag, and they then slaughter these remaining sheep, because, you see, it's so easy to think, well, I'm a, I have a natural gift. Let's give you an example. I have a natural gift, a very beautiful natural gift from God, which might be administration. Or it might be music. These are typical, or teaching. I mean, I have a natural gift of teaching. I used to be a lecturer in, in chemistry long before I ever taught the Word of God. So it's ever so easy for me to slip into natural ability. So your areas of greatest competence are your areas of greatest danger. Hello? That's where you can easily manage without God. And to manage without God is flesh. 
It's very easy, for example, to have a genuine vision from God of what he wants you to do, and then, having got the vision, you then fill, fill in the detail yourself. Now, that was one of the things that I used to do again and again. I get a genuine vision from God. I say, oh, God, I've got it now. You can go to sleep. Alan Vincent can handle this by himself. And it took me 20 years to learn how, how much I was sincerely trying to serve God in the flesh. And I've come to hate the flesh the way God hates the flesh. Amen? So it, it's not easy, and we need to recognize that it's not easy, but, but this misery that Paul speaks of is speaking as a... It's all in the present tense, because you see, however many years you've walked with God, it's always a present possibility that you can... You can stop walking in the spirit and begin to go back into the flesh. Any one of us can do it any time. And we need to be aware of that. Now, while the old man is dead, the battle with the flesh and the, da the daily need to deal with the flesh is an ever-present uh, battle which we will have till the day we die. In the Bible, there are basically three crosses. And a lot of people, I mean, I deal with that in that series on the the power of the cross, but there are three crosses. The one on which Jesus died for me to take away all the penalty of my sins, where Jesus has died for me as a once-for-all event, never to be repeated. The second one is when I am crucified with him to deal with the old man, a once-for-all event, never to be repeated. But there's a third cross, which is not his cross, it's my cross. And this cross, which he several times tells us to, we have to take it up daily and walk in this, if you like, this constant crucifying of the flesh, where you say to the flesh, flesh, you're not going to get any opportunity today to have your own way in my life. And, and you recognize that's a daily, moment by moment, hour by hour commitment, which never comes to an end. And even to our last moments, we could easily slip back into that. And then I've seen, and Paul rebukes the Galatian church for beginning in the spirit, but then continuing in the flesh. And even in spiritual gifts, like, I mean, you listen to some people prophesy, they start in the spirit, but they, they, I can tell the point when they move from spirit to flesh. And, and, and it's not that it's evil, it's just very often with a prophetic gift, you feel... A, 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 an empathy of sympathy for someone. Say, oh, that poor sister, that poor brother, I want to give him a word of comfort. And with a perfectly sincere um, intention, we manufacture with the best ability of our flesh to give him a word to help the word from God at all. It's just us doing our best to help them. Amen? So in any area, as a musician, you can, you can worship God, or, well, I'm not sure you can, not in spirit and in truth, but you can certainly play and perform very, very acceptably in your natural ability. But when you move from flesh to spirit, there's a different tone and a different quality about it all altogether. And the same with administration. And I had to learn, because for several years after I was converted, I continued in, in, as a research scientist in Kodak. I was responsible at that time for, the, uh, for something that I had invented going into production. So I had to supervise the factory trials. So I was very involved in all this. And, and this vast uh, machine that we were 
were you using to manufacture this thing, if, if it remained idle, that was, I don't know how many years ago, 30 years, 40 years ago it must have been. If it remained idle, it cost, let's say something, that was in those days, let's try, let's say it was about $2,000 a minute to have this machine standing idle. So, uh, uh, I had to make sure that, I had to make decisions like, do we, do we continue running to waste and make the adjustments, or do we stop the machine, and all this kind of thing. And, and I, 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 I messed up badly one day. And up to this time, you know, it's like the, like the, like the fishermen, when they, they went to fishing, they wanted Jesus to go to sleep in the back of the boat. He was a great preacher, but he wasn't the sort of guy that knew anything about fishing. So there was Jesus, who just complied, and he said, look, Jesus, you're great in, in preaching, but would you mind going to the back of the boat, keeping out of the way, because we're fishermen, and we know about fishing. <laughs> so he says, okay, I'll go to sleep. But really, but, but Father was cooking up a storm. <laughs> when I suddenly cried out, oh, no, don't you care that we perish? Well, I thought you were going to go to sleep in the back of the boat. No, now suddenly we realize we need you. And this day, when I realized I'd messed up, I cried out to God, and I discovered that God is an amazing technician. I'm not stupid to say that, but, but I realized that he, he knows a lot about chemistry and physics. <laughs> he created these things. But I never went to him for those sort of things. Until I nearly, I badly messed up and I cried out in my desperation. He gave me the perfect solution. As quick as that, it was like a word of, word of wisdom would be the word. And, and, and salvaged me and my reputation and, and saved Kerouac Film Company a lot of money. And I learned a lesson that day. That in all respects and in every way, I've got to walk in the spirit. If you come to Romans, that's what we touched on. And this one, it says, chapter 8, There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice the order in which that's put. Because we have to learn how to not walk after the flesh, and then, only then, is it possible to walk after the Spirit. Because most of us have already leapt off into flesh activity before we even realize that we've done it. Because we're so used to running our own lives, we're so used to managing ourselves, we are, we're full of, most people, until they're desperately broken, they're full of self-confident competence. We, we, you know, we don't honestly feel, I need God to, in lots of things where I really do need him. And so to learn to walk, not after the flesh, is a very, very important lesson to learn. And I, I want to tell you this, you will not learn it perfectly. And you tend to go in and out. But if we're making progress, the periods when we, when we unwittingly or even deliberately step into the flesh, they should become less and less, and the periods of walking in the Spirit become more and more. And now that, that's progress. Until eventually we come to the place where most of the time, we walk, in the, we walk in the Spirit. But we've got to learn how to not walk after the flesh before we can walk in the Spirit. Amen? So in all these things we're going to look at in Ephesians, that's the underlying principle. None of it will work until we learn this foundational principle. And then it goes on to say it again in verse 4, 
that the righteous, it talks about the law of the Spirit, which we looked at yesterday, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And, and you, know, you can just be processing in your mind, even in a conference like this, you can be processing naturally all the things that you need to attend to, all the things that you need to do. And I know how I used to do that. And not really let my mind focus on the things of the Spirit. Amen? Now come to Galatians just for a moment. And I want to look at one uh, extra facet there. There in Galatians chapter 5, it tells us what the horrible works of the flesh are. You see, here's the danger. The, uh, how, how do I explain this? Now, in, in Great Britain, we have a, a, a very evil weed, which I've never seen in America. It may be up in the north. It's certainly not around in Texas, but it's called bindweed. Uh, it's convolvulus something or other. I forget the full name. But this, this stuff is really sinister because it, it operates maybe three or four feet down in the ground and it'll go for a long way, and then it'll suddenly pop up. And, and, and what you, it's no good just plucking it off at ground level because that root structure's still there. And if you get bindweed in your, in your land, you've got an almighty job to get rid of this stuff. And what happens is that you plug it up here, but the root structure's still there, and suddenly it'll pop up there. And, and, and living in any facet of the flesh, to me, is a bit like bindweed. Now, you may, you may be struggling with maybe, you know, let's say, a particular irritability, frustration. You say, I've got to deal with that. But, you, but, but if, you, if you don't deal with the flesh, rather than deal with the manifestation of the flesh, can you hear me? Then it will pop up somewhere else. And if you read the list of the works of the flesh, you better say, man. You mean, in other words, if you allow irritability in your life, you could end up in immorality because it's, it's really another, another manifestation of the same flesh. And, and, and I, I, I don't know if you can hear what I'm saying, but, but I'll tell you, we can't mess around with flesh. It's deadly. It'll, it'll, it'll choke the life out of anything in the spirit. If you, if you tolerate it in one area, then those wretched, deep-rooted things of the flesh will spread everywhere, and they'll keep popping up in other places, which you say, well, I don't really want that, but you, sometimes because you've tolerated that, you can't stop that happening. Amen? And uh, you read that list, I'm not going to read it this morning, it's too depressing. to say, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and all these wonderful fruits, or one fruit really, many flavored fruit, okay? Now we come to verse 24. So how do we ensure on the one hand the fruit of the Spirit, and how do we assure on the other hand there are no works of the flesh evident? And the answer is that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. So you've, you see, what you've done is, and there's a lovely phrase in one of um, A.W. Tozer's books. I think it's, I think it's, I, I think it's the pursuit, uh, the root of righteousness, or the pursuit of holiness. It's one of those two books. I forget which it is, and he, it makes this fantastic phrase, which I know so truly in my own life. He said, "There comes a point in your life when you take sides with God against yourself." Now that's a tremendous phrase. When you say, God, I agree with you, you and I, we're going to be at war together against this stuff. And when you come to hate your own flesh and not excuse your own flesh, and then you and God can, can then be allies together in dealing with this wretched flesh stuff that works in all of our lives. And the flesh is not the same as the old man. Many Christians confuse the two. They talk about, oh, the old man's troubling me. No, the old man was crucified with Christ. What you're talking about dealing with is flesh. And, and the remedy is different. Now, again, on that series on the power of the cross, I deal with all these things because I feel there are, there are things that Christians absolutely have to learn. Um, one, one pastor got that set of tapes and said that he'd preached 35 sermons in his church of that set of tapes. And he said, our people are transformed. And you see, there's a, there's a power in the cross which we have lost. We don't really understand many... When Paul came to Corinth, he said, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and he preached there for almost three years. And I thought, man, what did he preach for three years? Well, now I understand. I can easily preach on the cross. You know, once or twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday. I could do it. I could keep going for for years on the path, just the power of the cross. So, so, so we, that's what it says, those that are Christ, they have crucified the flesh. And it's something that you have to do. There are certain things that God can't do for you. He can work with you when you are in agreement about it. But he can't say, oh God, deliver me. No, he says, this is where you and I have got to work together in this matter. It always talks about us humbling ourselves. Oh Lord, humble me. No, what he'll give you is a situation where you can choose to humble yourself. Or you can, you can choose to stand on your pride. He'll give you the situation, but the decision of how you handle it is yours. And that never can be done for you. Amen? And God, in... in, in, in uh, yeah, I'm going to say this because it's true. God can't crucify the flesh for you. You and he have got to do it together. Does that make sense? So those of the Christ have crucified the flesh with all its lusts and desires, its passions and desires. Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So here's a very, very important truth about walking in the Spirit. See, here we are, we're here in San Antonio, Texas. This happens to be my home. But for some of you, it's not your home. You've come from various parts of Texas and from various parts of America. And I spend most of my time on the road, so I know what it feels like to be in another town. Now, if I'm in, let's say, oh, Philadelphia, say Pittsburgh or... Boston or somewhere like that. When I'm in another town, I can imagine San Antonio and wish I was there. But because 
I'm not living there, I can't walk there. Amen? My hometown in, or a little village in England, Kings Langley, is a very nice little village, and I can imagine myself, I can mentally imagine myself walking up the hill, going to the old ancient cricket field, actually walking the very path, hunt, walking around on the very same trees that Henry VIII once hunted. Some of those trees are 600 years old, and that's where he used to come and, and hunt deer at the weekend. So I can imagine, I can imagine King Henry VIII sitting down and mopping his brow on, under the very same tree that I'm sitting. I can, I, all those things I can imagine vividly, because they're way up, they're reality. But because I'm not living there, I can't actually walk there. You can only walk where you live. That's simple. So if you live in the spirit, then you are, only then are you able to walk in the spirit. So if you desire to be holy and to desire all these great things that we're going to look at in a moment to come into your life, then you've got to live there before you can walk there. <laughs> so if you live in the flesh and try, and try to walk in the spirit, you're just living in as, as foolish a contradiction as me trying to walk in my home village when I'm actually living in San Antonio. You can only walk where you live. And we have to learn how to live in the Spirit in order to walk in the Spirit. And that, of course, the primary uh, activity is communion with God. Okay. Now, having put in that bit of background, let's now turn to our notes and let's begin to look at some of the ways we have to walk. And the first one I've got down... And there's actually seven of them, but they're A, B, A through G. But the first one is on chapter, uh, on page 26, and we'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4 now. And there are, there are two verses that we want to look at. One of them is back in chapter 2 and verse 10. And it tells us there that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's saying the same thing as Psalm 139 and is whatever verse it is, I've forgotten, is it verse about 18 where David said you know, that you, ordo you ordained my days before there was one of them. And the, this is the amazing thing that we are so you know, our very uh, coming into existence and were so planned by God that before he created the world in his great eternal design of, of what he was going to do what he was going, what he was going to accomplish he had already created you in that sense of spirit that you were already designed by him and you were, you were put together in his, in his creative spirit with all the needful attributes and then at a certain time, at a certain place, he called you forth to come into physical manifestation. But the plan for your life, we're told, was there before the foundation of the world. Now, isn't that absolutely staggering? Now, success is for you to get in God's plan. You cannot be more successful than doing what God planned for you to do before the world was created. 
And however prominent you might make yourself, or however busy you might uh, be, and however much uh, people might admire what you're doing, if you're out of the will of God, then you're wasting your life. Yeah. It's really that simple. And so all my Christian life, the first thing that I felt very important is that I'm located geographically where God wants me to be. And I've never had any difficulty hearing God because I discovered that the day I was born again, that I was born again with good spiritual hearing. I don't believe anyone is born again spiritually with spiritual congenital deafness. No one is born again with a, a hearing imp imp impediment in the spirit, but if you don't obey what you hear, then you soon become dull of hearing. Spiritual hearing, is a, spiritual hearing is a very sensitive faculty which you can either cultivate and hear more and more clearly until you can literally hear your father the way that Jesus did. Now Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 30, he said, he said, whatever I hear I judge, and I always judge rightly, I always judge correctly, because I seek not my own will but the will of him that sent me. Now there's the key to perfect spiritual hearing. So Jesus says, basically, although there's a whole concophony of impressions and sounds and, and demons trying to deceive me like everybody else, he says, I never ever once missed what my father wanted me to do. I always heard perfectly, although I did judge everything, I didn't just suck everything in with unselective credibility and that's a mistake that you can make when you get into the thing. You think everything that you hear purported to be of the spirit is of the spirit and it isn't. So when you get into the into the spirit realm you've got to learn to be discerning and pick out that unerring voice of God and then obey it to the letter. Obey, and then, then as you do that your hearing gets better and better and better. If you don't it's rather like someone with a tremendous musical ear. It, it needs to be trained by a master musician to come to its full, full potential. The gift is there, but it needs to be developed. On the other hand, if you don't use it, it just falls into waste and you lose that ability. And I thank God from the day that I was born again. In fact, I discovered within two hours of being born again, I, God spoke to me for the first time and, and what happened to me was my wife and I gave our lives to Jesus in someone's home, we came home we, and both she and I were smokers at the time and, so, and, and I didn't smoke during the day much because I worked in a, a, a research laboratory where there were many fumes and, and you, it wasn't permitted but every lunch time once I finished work and, and in the evening that was my relaxation so when I got back from being born again, got back to my home and sat down with my wife and, uh, and I said, wow, that was, that was something, wasn't it? Here, have a cigarette. So I gave her one and I took one. And then I, for the first time, I heard what I now know to be the voice of God. And it, he simply said to me, you don't need those anymore, throw them away. So I took my packet of cigarettes, put my cigarette back. I didn't even ask Eileen, but I took hers. <laughs> which on consideration was a bit overbearing but then I guess I was still a bit of a, a male chauvinist pig at that time so I staggered in and I threw it into the trash and that was the end and I've never smoked since you see, you see there's, there's a moment 
in our lives, when, when God speaks to us, and if we do what he says when he speaks to us, there's power to see the fulfillment of what he said. There are many people, you see, when the children of Israel were told by God to go into the promised land, after a very short period in the wilderness, they said no. Because the giants are too big, the cities are too fortified, so God said, all right then, if you won't obey me now, you're going to learn a few things by a long period in the wilderness. But after about another two or three months, they repented and said, oh, well, we're all ready to go now. Moses said, it's too late now, you've missed your opportunity, you've missed your Kairos moment. So they went in under their own strength and it was an abysmal failure. And that's why many people struggle with besetting sins because they don't deal with them at God's moment. Hello? So if we learn to hear God and do what he says on, on, the, on that, that well, I'm going to call it that Kairos moment, because that's what it really is, then it's a done deal. Hallelujah. And I've learned to hear God. Another thing that happened to me, this was about four or five days after I was converted, I, as I told you the other day, I was, I was a motorcyclist and I was on my lovely Vincent Black Shadow and I was going to my first evangelistic meeting. It was about five days later. And on my way to this evangelistic meeting, I just heard this voice, which I w wasn't quite sure about in those days, but I decided, well, if, I, if it sounds like God, I'm going to do it. And this voice said, buy some coffee and sugar. So I stopped up at uh, the store, and I thought, well, I better obey that. I hadn't got a clue why I was doing it, so I, I bought this, you know, some, you know, some coffee, and I, and, and I brought sugar, and put it into the pannier of my motorcycle, and went on to the meeting. When I got there and parked and walked in, there were the, the ladies organizing this event. They said, we've run out of coffee and sugar. <laughs> so I said, I said, don't worry, and I walked in there. <laughs> I thought, I can hear God now. This, this was training. I'll tell you one other incident. I mentioned to you yesterday how I had this conversation with Anna Mendes where for 45 minutes she, she instructed me on the activities and, and the evil activities of the spirit of death. And I tell you, I sat there and I thought, I don't know a thing about this, and I've got so much to learn. But I tell you, I sucked in everything that she told me. But, but you see, years ago, when my daughter, uh, some of you know the story, was, was almost killed in Harare, Zimbabwe, by a devilish attack upon her. And we, we got her back to England. She was, she was miraculously uh, brought out of a coma when they said there was no hope, but, but she still had totally crushed bones in her legs and she had, she, from her waist right down, she was in plaster for about five months and they did their best in one of the, the best orthopedic centers in, in Britain. They, they'd done all they could and they said that we cannot get these bones to heal. They said we're going to have to operate, open up all her legs and start packing live bone chips in there and hope somehow that there'll come a fusion. And we couldn't, I mean, we couldn't face that, neither could she. And she was in one of our Every Sunday night in those days, we had, we had what we called a warring praise night, which is a fantastic thing. And these were incredible power meetings where we would worship and praise God, but as he led us, we would hit things in the spirit realm. It wasn't the time we prayed for Mary's backache, it was more the, the, the affairs of the kingdom. Do you understand what I mean? And we, when this lecture was there, she'd been, in a world, she'd been in plaster for five months now, and these legs would not heal. She said, she said to them, well, just give us one more month. Let's see what God will do. And they rather reluctantly agreed. And she was in this prayer meeting. 
And God spoke to me, and I heard him say this to me. He said, the spirit of death which tried to kill Rachel is in her bones resisting the healing. Now, now, you, now, I come from a rational scientific background and I'm, I'm struggling with this. I don't even know who or what the spirit of death is. It doesn't make any sense to me. But he said, cast it out. So I decided, like a little child, to obey what I'd heard. And I stood over her in this, in this and I said, you spirit of death that tried to kill my daughter, and now you're in the bones, resisting their hitting. In Jesus' mighty name, I cast you out. You get out of her in Jesus' mighty name. All I know is that three weeks later when they x-rayed her, the legs were perfectly healed. That's all I know. Now, I didn't know what I did, but you know, you can do things that you don't understand, providing you obey what you hear. Now, as I sat with Sister Anna Mendes, probably all of 30-odd years later, she begins to explain to me what I did, if you like, by obedience, without understanding to what the Spirit was saying. And my daughter is walking around gloriously healed because she's got a dad who's simple enough to do what he's told. What would have happened if I said, oh, that, that, oh that's, that's irrational, I can't get go away. I don't know what would have happened. Anyway, who, we don't even want to think that way. I heard, I obeyed, bingo, she was here. And we need much, much more of that, my beloved ones. Amen? So I want you to cry out. I want your ambition for this year to be gone. You know, if, if your hearing's been impaired by disobedience, repent. Ask him to restore your hearing and say, Lord, I want you to develop my hearing. The most important gift that I can have is the ability to hear God. And I promise you, Lord, that I, that, that I want you to train me. And I want to learn to... And whatever I, I believe you've said to me, I'm going to obey it. And if you make a few mistakes on the way, God's not going to condemn you. He'd rather you stepped out in mishearing obedience than reserved disobedience. Or, I better not make a mistake, therefore I better not do anything. I tell you, if you read the scriptures, God never deals with the entrepreneurial, dare people that way. He says, go on, have a go. Yes. You find you were right. And then you find that you are being used by God for, for wonderful works. Amen. All right. So, we, are, we have good works foreordained that we should walk in. Now I come to Ephesians 4.10 where I want us now to, in this one verse, we get what I believe is the summary of what it's all about. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 10. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, what I think we've got to do is to refocus our understanding on what the purpose of God is. Now, hear me when I say this. God's purpose, his purpose is not to get people saved. That's a powerful, important byproduct. God's purpose is to bring the rule and government of God over the face of the whole earth with Jesus Christ as the undisputed Lord and King of that government. Yeah. 
Now that's world again. Now in, in the process of that, of course, a passion of God is for people to come to salvation which means they've got to stop living in disobedience to the king and come in and become obedient to the king. So the issue of the kingdom is actually more, or if you like, the willingness to obey him is more important than the issue of their sins. Does that shock you? And once that basic principle of I'm here to live in obedience to God and that was that's, once that's appropriated the forgiveness of sins is a, is a joyful consequence of that decision to obey God that God cannot forgive the sins of a rebel hello he can't and you hear people say well, well they've received Jesus but they haven't accepted him as their Lord there's no such position as far as the Bible is concerned. It just doesn't exist. And I do not want to preach it, and I don't want to delude people into thinking that somehow you can be a sort of a, a saved Christian without a Jesus is Lord Christian, because that person doesn't exist in the Bible. Wow. Amen. Amen? And so we've got to walk in his purpose. And, and that's his purpose. And there are many scriptures we could turn to where we're told that the whole purpose was that Jesus might fill all things, he might be all in all. I mean, the, the majesty of, of scripture is incredible. And I know the day I got filled with the Spirit, the day my eyes were opened, the day I sat down with him on my throne, I saw that my passion at that time was to see Jesus' rule and government and, and his undisputed Lord accepted and received in the city of Bombay where I was then living. Now, obviously, when people start, as it says in uh, Acts 26, verse 18, when their eyes are open and they see that there is evil and there is darkness, there is a Satan and there is a King Jesus, and they repent and, and come from disobedience to obedience, then forgiveness of sins is a joyful important byproduct of that decision. But the horrible thing is that he might fill all in all. Amen? And, and we could turn to many scriptures. So that's, that's the purpose. I'm, I'm going to walk in his purpose. And that's why you find the Apostle Paul preached Jesus and the kingdom. And quite often he preached the kingdom. Of course he never ever lost sight of the fact who was the king of the kingdom and who was the glorious one that was going to now have the, the, the rule and majesty of that kingdom. That's why I feel so absolutely impelled upon me in the fall to teach about the kingdom of God. So we can comprehend it, how it works and what it will finally become. Um, because heaven is nothing more than the fruit of a relationship where God's will is perfectly done. Does that make sense to you? So wherever God's will is perfectly done, the, the consequence of that obedience produces the environment which we call heaven. 
everything is beauty and everything is beautiful and lovely and there in that environment there's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no death, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering. Now all of that is the, like it's, it's the fruit of the obedience which brought the kingdom. That's why it's called the kingdom of heaven as well as being called the kingdom of God. Heaven is the environment which is produced by the obedience. And of course, uh, conversely, hell is the environment which is produced by disobedience. And that's the root issue. And I believe that when we see that clearly, and, and it comes fully into our lives, and then fully into the lives of those we lead, then it starts to permeate our society then we'll have heaven on earth to the degree that we've got obedience on earth which of course is what Jesus said he said pray for my kingdom to come then what's the next phrase your will be done on earth the way it's done in heaven now heaven isn't so much a location as a relationship so whenever God's will is done perfectly then Heaven is the consequence of the obedience. When I saw that, it like exploded in my spirit. And I thought, now I know what I'm going for. I know what I'm aiming at now. I'm, I'm focused on what my purpose is. Amen? Right, let's move on now. I don't know what... Okay. Let's move on to the second thing on, chapter, on page 26 that's to walk in unity and I'll just say here that this unity has to be worked out not just believed in we've covered a lot of this already and I'm not going to repeat it all as the great peacemaker God went to the cross while we were still hostile enemies of God there was no sign of a breakthrough in advance to encourage him in fact, if you think about it, the last week of the life that Jesus had upon earth was the most rebellious and hateful that he ever experienced. You think, well, you might think, well, Father, this is hopeless. Let me come back to you in heaven and let these... Why are we able to bother with mankind? <laughs> but he, see, he was a man of faith. I think his high priestly prayer is amazing. When in John 17 he says, Father, I thank you for all those that are going to believe in me through their word. And here's this bunch of disciples going to run like scared rabbits and the whole um, collapse of all that he appeared to have built on earth seemed absolutely imminent. But he had faith for them. Faith of the power of the cross. But we're going to have to walk in unity. Now, I've listed from verse 26 and 27 some of the basic attitudes and the activity necessary to walk in unity. Let's go to, we're now in chapter 4 and we're starting to read from verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Here's some of the attributes. And here's some acti activity with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. 
endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I've already talked to you about peace and peacemaking. I think we're clear on that now, aren't we? Amen? But, but there's, this, there's a sort of, I, I don't know how to put this, you know, there is this, this, these words like the word hupomone here, which is the word for long-suffering, it, it's, it's, it's long-standing perseverance with cheerfulness. You know, I'm going to do this day in, day out, every minute of every day, I don't care what comes against me, you see, that's what agape love is like. It's described in Isaiah 50, you know, when the Spirit of Christ speaks through prophet Isaiah, verse 7, uh, I was not rebellious, neither did I turn away back. I gave my back to the spiders. I gave my cheeks to those that plucked out the beard. I turned up my face from shame and spitting. I've, and then it goes on to say, I've set my, my heart like a flint. I will not turn back. Now that, that's love. And, and often when you go out to make peace, you get slapped in the face for it. You get kicked in the teeth for it. Now, that's what God did when he came to make peace. But he said, I'm going to love you to death. <laughs> I'm going to love you until that whirling, hostile enmity in you dies and you just fall into my arms in reconciled love and you and I can become absolutely one. And there was, there was a, there's a, a relentless perseverance in it. And we're not going to solve the divisions in our cities by just one attempt at unity. Oh, it's a waste of time. These people are not interested. I tell you, we've, we've got to break through this demonic wall that separates us until there's a, there's a melting together. And, and, and we're going to have to hit it again and again until it all comes down in Amen. Jesus' name. It's going to take perseverance. It's going to take the same love that God had for us. We're going to have to forgive and forbear and all these tremendous words. And thus, three, let me just touch this and we'll have, we'll have, a, have a break. You may want to ask some questions. And then it says endeavoring. And that word endeavoring has got tremendous strength in it. To keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That word bond is, the Greek word is sundesmos. And sundesmos is the word that was used to describe the, the chains that were used to chain together a chain gang of slaves. Now, if you were a slave and you were put into a chain gang to work, and you didn't really have any choice about who was chained next to you. Oh no, not him. Oh no, not her. But you really didn't have any choice. And what's more, you couldn't get away, you were chained. Hallelujah. You got the picture? There's, there's, so, so we've got to maintain the unity of the spirit in, in the chain gang of peace. Saying, I know, okay, God's put me into this church, into this particular group of leaders, with this particular pastor uh, as my spiritual authority, and there's no place, nowhere I can go until God comes and legitimately unlocks the key, takes me and rechains me in another situation. So you never escape the chains. Wow. He may change the chains, but you never escape them. So wherever you are located, if you, if you see it, because Paul is using this vivid illustration, which of course he would see every day, because the Roman Empire was full of chain gangs, uh, of slaves working, and they really didn't have any choice about 
who they were connected to. It was the chain decided it. The master set that thing in, and that was it. Maintaining the unity of the spirit in the chain gang of peace. <laughs> and I tell you, sometimes you get tremendous temptation to run out of a situation. But what often happens is that God's put you next to someone because you two rubbing together can do marvelous work in each other. He is a growing tool that is, is shaping you like Christ and you're probably doing the same to him. So although you can't see it, you need each other until the work's complete. Amen. Well, let's stop here. Let's pray. We'll have a break. Or you can ask me a few questions, then we'll have a break. Well, let's, let's, we've, heard, we've covered some pretty important principles. and I know it's not new to any of you, but I feel maybe I've been able to underline them three times in red. <laughs> Amen. So that we say, wow, I knew that was important, but I didn't know it was that important.